This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 6th of May 2023 on Monocle Radio. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up on today's programme, it's a big day for Britain, celebrating the first coronation in 70 years. Broadcast journalist Vincent McAvinney will join me in the studio to look at how this has been covered and also have a flick through some of the other stories in the papers today. Then, how significant is milk when it comes to global politics? We'll be at a new exhibition which examines how something so seemingly mundane has such huge significance. Plus... We learned that the global plague of public pianos, pianos, that is, left in public places where any passing yahoo may attempt to tickle their ivories with nigh invariably earaching results, has been reduced by one. Andrew Muller looks back on the last seven days. That's all coming up here on Monocle on Saturday. First, though, here's the news. Wagner, Russia's main mercenary group, has announced plans to withdraw from the eastern Ukrainian city of Bakhmut. But Ukraine said the fighters are reinforcing positions to try and seize it before Russia marks World War II Victory Day next week. Sudan's warring parties are set to meet today in the Saudi Red Sea city of Jeddah for talks, Riyadh and Washington said, as international mediators press to end a conflict that's killed hundreds of people and sent tens of thousands of refugees fleeing abroad. The World Health Organization ended the global emergency status for COVID-19 on Friday, more than three years after its original declaration, and said that countries should now manage the virus that killed more than 6.9 million people, along with other infectious diseases. And British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak hailed the coronation of King Charles today as a show of the nation's history and a demonstration of its modern character, saying no other country could muster such a dazzling display. Sunak said it is a moment of extraordinary national pride. And that's your Monocle Radio News. Hello and welcome to Monocle on Saturday. With me in the studio right now is Vincent McAvinney, who is a political reporter and a regular politics commentator for Monocle Radio. Good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, Now, I know you've been doing a load of coronation stuff for various people all week. Mm -hmm. Tell me about sort of immersing yourself in that world and reporting about it from the ground. So the advice that I give student journalists when I ever have to give a talk or have like uh, an intern with me is this. Every journalist in Britain is at some point a royal correspondent. And if you don't know it, you'll get caught out. You have to treat it as seriously as any other subject. Keep an awareness of it because you do get caught up in royal stories. I once had to, uh, every reporter's nightmare, it was the announcement that uh, Harry and Meghan were pregnant with their first child. I was told we need you to come up on air, do a two-minute live about the announcement Kensington Palace. uh, and, And that was it. What happened? The next reporter's uh, line dropped out 
And then the package after that had a failure. And I had to talk for 10 minutes solid <laughs> on a, a sort of three-line press release. And you just have to have the depth of knowledge about the family and what's going on in the royal family in this country. And, you know, it is a historical institution, a thousand years old. You sometimes have to report it. So every now and again, you step back in for these big events. I've done the weddings before and the jubilees. Uh, I kicked off this, this week, last Sunday, I was down at an RAF base watching the uh, rehearsals. It was the first time they brought over 7,000 troops from across the three forces of the British military and also 34 nations of the Commonwealth and six overseas realms. I came around this corner at the uh, military base, this RAF base, obviously has a giant runway, a couple of giant runways and triangle. This is where they were going to rehearse for the first time. And seeing 7,500 troops lined up on this runway in perfect formation, marching all day, the bands playing, all of it. It is, and I saw them in the week then overnight doing the rehearsals and covered that. It is going to be quite a sight. It's the largest ceremonial military operations since the last coronation 70 years ago. Uh, so for anyone that is lucky enough to be in central London today, the, the, just the, that pageantry side logistically and everything else is is quite impressive the music is very impressive i think it will be a, that will be the thing that makes today mm. and i mean i think the biggest policing operation this country's ever seen yeah the biggest policing operation they've pulled in officers from forces around the country even where i'm from jersey and the channel islands has sent police officers because they just need as many as possible on the way into monocle this morning i mean we're in quite central london where we are right now Midori house um i've never seen the volume of police cars uh, that were going around quite a lot with blue lights on rushing around this morning actually as well because there are worries obviously worries that someone might of course London's always worried that there might be some sort of attack but there's also uh, concerns about other groups sort of hijacking the day protest groups like Extinction Rebellion also we've just come into the studio here the head of Republic which is the sort of official Republic movement in the UK has been arrested whilst protesting with others in Trafalgar Square which was right along the route that the King will be going later on as well so we're already sort of seeing uh, that taking place mm. and of course there are lots of leaders coming that people don't necessarily agree agree with. No. Uh, so it is a state occasion. You've got 200 uh, nations represented, including 100 heads of state at Westminster Abbey. Um, obviously, they had a rehearsal for this last year. The Queen's funeral was, I think, it went down as the biggest gathering of heads of states and world leaders ever, essentially. We haven't quite got to that level because people like, uh, you know, President Joe Biden aren't coming. It's it's Dr. Jill Biden. US presidents don't come, I think, for historical reasons. But it is still a hugely significant gathering of world leaders. So the security operation for that is immense. Mm. Uh, and obviously some coming who are very questionable as well. So you might get, you know, protesters about that. So, you, you know, you've got, I think it's the Chinese vice presidents here. You've got Zimbabwe in representation. You've got even North North Korean representation, there are those kind of expat groups here in London that would like to protest about them attending this as well. But, no, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think that, that what they're trying to say is that this is not a political occasion. It's a royal occasion. Uh, and I mean, because of the Zimbabwean leader coming, I must say I've been in touch with, with everybody from <laughs> the Archbishop of Canterbury mm. to, 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 the, to the Foreign Secretary. And um, that, is, that is their argument. But I think, mm. I mean, what uh, people in Britain are being asked to do is to take this, uh, that, that, to swear allegiance to the king and 
one of one of the lines is to, uh, something about the laws of the country. But by inviting Emerson Mnangagwa, the president of Zimbabwe, they are in fact breaking a British law because although he's not a sanctioned person himself, uh, Zimbabwe Defence Industries, which is a, a state-run company, is on the sanctions list. He's the head of state. I mean, that's breaking the law. Mm. Mm. And, <laughs> uh, and well there'll be a lot Charles of very an accidental history with Zimbabwe. The handshake at the Pope's funeral. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it is. It is an interesting one. And it, interestingly, this morning we've had an announcement that they released the order of service. They have actually changed that section of the ceremony. So I think. Buckingham Palace was slightly blindsided. I think it was a suggestion from the Archbishop of Canterbury about this people at home being called upon to sort of do this kind of allegiance proclamation thing. That has now actually been dropped uh, from the service this morning. I think they realised that maybe that was a touch too far. Mm. I mean, there are many, many contentious things about it. The uh, crown used to contain the Kohenor diamond, which of course is from India, the horrible kind of associations mm-hmm. with colonialism and yep. all the rest of it. But they're That's not the, being worn though today. But they're keeping the Cullinan diamond, which is from South Africa, which has exactly the same problematic history. Mm-hmm. They also have two pieces of the one true cross. Yes, that I read about this. It's remarkable <laughs> that to actually have the you know the one true cross from uh, from Jesus. Um, that is going to be interesting. It, I mean, it is it is fascinating as well that you know the 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 stone of destiny coming down, the the coronation chair. Um, you know, it is. There are elements when you read into it of a thousand years of British history, but also the only surviving thing, you know, if you if you go back a thousand years, the actual only surviving thing pre-Cromwell, uh, I think it's some kind of anointing rod uh, for, for for the oil, that uh, everything else was destroyed by Cromwell. So, you know, it is a sort of the whole ceremony will be laced with all kinds of significant things from hundreds of years of these coronations. I think this, I think he's the 63rd or so monarch of this country mm. now in a line. How globally significant is this event? I think, I think it will be watched. I think the audiences will be in hundreds of millions. I think it's very different. This is someone who, you know, the Queen came into power in her early 20s um, and so had never really had a, a public life where she had kind of spoken out about anything. And so there was always the mystique. And I think part of her power was that she knew to kind of keep some of that mystery alive. Um, and I thought last year um, Emmanuel Macron summed it up when he just said um, she wasn't a queen. She was the queen. And she spent decades in rooms full of powerful men at the top of power and... Uh, around the world as often the only woman, um, you know, without actually, because she was never meant to be queen, being given the education to handle that, and she got through it and represented this country well. You know, she never really made a public error, apart from, you know, not going to Aberfan and maybe, you know, some stuff around Diana. But she didn't really ever, on the diplomatic side or anything like that, make it a public error. Charles is a different commodity because he's 74. Um, he's made a lot of public interventions. He's had a lot of public scandal uh, as well. So people have more of an opinion of who the person actually is. It's harder to kind of project onto Charles the way that we kind of did with Queen what we assumed about her from the small signals mm. that she gave us. So there are those who, you know, still, oh, I think. We've seen behind the, the curtain. We've seen behind yeah. the curtain, definitely, definitely. Um, and he himself has at times, you know, engaged in that. He's given interviews, extensive interviews, where he's talked about his 
personal life. Mm. Um, so that that is there as well. And it's interesting, one of the stories I've picked up on today in the New York Times uh, is actually about the other person whose big day it is today, and that is Camilla Parker Bowles. Uh, the New York Times got a piece saying, a triumph of image transformation. And they talk to uh, sort of PR and communications people about how staggering her metamorphosis has been, about how it's one of the most successful rebrands ever. If you go back to 1997, when, um, you know, they were together at that point, sort of quietly. Obviously, Princess Diana dies. You know, she was the most vilified woman in in Britain throughout the 90s. She was, you know, a tabloid hate fixture. Many people, even when they got married in 2005, had the view that, okay, fine, they've married, but she should never be queen. And then over time, she's done the work on particular causes, so literacy, domestic violence, uh, and she really rebuilt her brand. And the thing that really I think tipped it over the line for her to be able to be doing this today, to be becoming the Queen, is that last year, and it was less than a year ago, the Queen, Queen Elizabeth II, on her uh, Platinum Jubilee, said that it was her wish that Camilla become Queen Consort. Um, and, and that is what's happening now. She's had some stones thrown at her recently from Prince Harry's book, uh, which has been very damning of her, saying, I think the fame the line was, you know, there's been bodies left in the street from the the mission to kind of rehabilitate her image. He's accused her of leaking stories, uh, of, of briefing against the boys to make herself look good and all that kind of thing. Uh, but it is going to be quite a remarkable day for her as well, uh, you know, being up there, uh, just a woman who, you know, was was so vilified by the tabloids and and and, and so unpopular uh, has managed to sort of turn this around. A lot of people in the polling today, you know, she's she's rated uh, higher than most members of the royal family. A lot of people, when you talk to them about Camilla, they always think, oh, she's actually probably the one that might be the most fun to go for mm. a drink with. Yeah, absolutely. A triumph of rebranding. Yeah, and I spent said. actually three hours with her once uh, when I worked for ITV News. I had to produce a, a footage. She came for a tour of ITV, ITV Corporation on its 60th birthday and I had to follow around for three hours filming this thing. Um, and she was... In, she uh, and of all the roles I've, I've seen in person and, and pretty much all the senior ones, she and Harry are the, the best people people and they're both very similar very down to earth but like to have a laugh and she was she could talk to anyone she was interested in what their roles were uh, and you know she sustained it for that for that and and so she does kind of put the work in it seems yeah i'm just before we leave the subject as sadly we must mm-hmm. um <laughs> i'm very concerned about the um uh, facilities for people uh, at the service because of course they're having to go in hours before they're all in there now all the dignitaries. Yes. Yeah. yeah 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 what happens when they need to go to the loo there are loos in Westminster Abbey I think so they can go I think that there's, there'll be a point where they say you've got to stay in your seats but I think this was an issue when I think when Wills and Kate got married which was 12 years ago last week already um, Victoria Beckham was heavily pregnant so they had to request a seat next to uh, next to the loos so <laughs> I think this this reared its head then and, and Westminster Abbey said you know we're a fully uh, modern abbey we've we've got the facilities Excellent. Well, good to know. (laughs) Uh, Vincent, we'll be back with you shortly for some more stories from around the world. Now, for many people, pouring milk on your cereal in the morning doesn't feel like something too significant. In fact, milk has a unique place in global politics, society and culture. A new exhibition at the Wellcome Collection in London explores this. And our Sophie Monaghan-Coombs went along and filed this report. Milk's an extraordinary substance because it uh, is a very everyday substance that we take for granted. But if you start to shine a light on it, then you really start to 
see how the kind of politics of our of our country operate, how the kind of food system operates, uh, what systems govern those things and the inequalities within those systems. Anna Bedard is one of the curators behind Milk at London's Welcome Collection. At first glance, the topic might seem a strange choice for a major exhibition of artworks and historical artefacts. But it quickly becomes apparent that the white liquid is a rich source of curatorial material and calcium. So a kind of key question is how has cow's milk come to be seen as so essential to a diet in the UK? Uh, What are the forces that shape the ways that we feed our infants? How has milk been used to tie ideas of health to whiteness? Um, And perhaps crucially, how uh, do we value milk and those who produce it? Around two-thirds of the world's population have some difficulty digesting milk. So how did it become the staple that we see it as today? I mean, I think a key part of that, of course, is colonialism and cultural imperialism that helped to spread milk and milk drinking around the globe. And so that very much started with the kind of colonial settlers who brought uh, dairy breeds into different, uh, their kind of different parts of the empire. And these were breeds that were much higher milk yield. But it was also kind of based on an idea of kind of white superiority so that the idea that British or European agricultural systems were somehow better. Um, And this very much ignored the kind of indigenous uh, use and management of the land that was kind of built on kind of incredible kind of knowledge of the land um, and very kind of deep and complex uh, systems of management. And it it very much carried through um, as we kind of found the technologies to uh, preserve milk in different ways. So powdered milk, tinned milk, condensed milk, that very much helped to kind of, I guess, create a culture of milk drinking in other parts of the world because milk could be exported. So as I say, in the early days, it was very much about kind of British or European colonisers trying to create ways to kind of keep their own diets going in the countries that they colonised. But then it very much became about using European nutritional science to justify the kind of imposition of these practices, you know, as I say, based on an idea of superiority. Um, And of course, you know, also that was boosting the kind of the profits of the dairy industry in, in places like the UK and America. Drink your milk, kids. I don't want milk. Milk's for babies. Yeah, babies. Well, yeah. Well, I happen to know that milk helps build... One of the interesting things for us was how in the States, the uh, United States Department of Agriculture are responsible for both creating the federal dietary guidelines, but they're also responsible for the health of the dairy industry. And this sort of conflict of interest seems to sort of go unnoticed. So when you think about um, government kind of funded... Uh, advertising campaigns like the Got Milk campaign, for example, you know, these are incredibly powerful forces that are, uh, you know, encouraging people to drink milk. Got milk. And while Big Dairy understandably plays a big part in the exhibition, there are, of course, many other types of milk. But on top of almond, soy and my preferred oat milk, there was one particularly surprising fact about another kind of milk. I think a lot of people aren't aware that human milk is now being sold quite widely online and that's being uh, purchased not just by parents but also people like bodybuilders who think that it can promote muscle growth or people are buying it for fetish use or perhaps in health enthusiasts who think that it might cure health problems or boost immune systems. Um, And in the 21st century I think we've got to start thinking about how we can regulate uh, the kind of sale of, of human milk and that brings with it 
very complicated questions about how we value human milk and particularly we value those who produce it. The Welcome Collections exhibition exposes the deep complexities of the seemingly everyday substance and, spilling over into questions of gender, politics, health and colonialism, it's clear that the story of milk, or at least our relationship with milk, is far from over. Monocle's Sophie Monaghan-Coombs there. And if you'd like to visit the Welcome Collections exhibition Milk, you can do so until the 10th of September. And for more food and drink-related stories, make sure to tune in to The Menu here on Monocle Radio. It comes out every Friday at 20.00 UK time. This is Monocle on Saturday. And still with me in the studio is Vincent McAvinney. Uh, and Vincent, we've uh, just been hearing all about milk. When I hear milk, I immediately make the association with Harvey Milk, who, of course, was the gay rights activist and politician. Uh, Now, a film was made about him called Milk. It was written by Dustin Lance Black, who is the partner of the diver, the British Olympic diver, Tom Daly. Uh, Dustin, who is a previous guest on Meet the Writers, and people should listen to his wonderful interview there, it's in our archives, uh, recently been in the news for allegedly assaulting someone. Yeah, an incident on a night out where he uh, reportedly poured a drink over someone and now they're bringing a legal action, which is, Uh, uh, yeah. Unfortunate for him, I thought he was such a nice man and such a talented writer. Uh, But he, I guess, like the rest of the writers in Hollywood, is being affected by the strike. Tell us more, because it's reported across the papers today. Yeah, it's reported uh, heavily across the papers and one particular demand of the strikers is really jumping out. It's in uh, the New York Times and the Financial Times. So the the basis of this strike, the last time there was a strike that this was 2008 and it did shut down production and series were sort of truncated and and movie production uh, went down Um, and what you have now is that you have a completely different media landscape they all used to work for network television they would do pilots they'd be in writers rooms they'd kind of have more stable jobs now obviously with the rise of streamers smaller series they get hired on these sort of you know loose contracts they don't get the same kind of royalties because the shows aren't being played over and over again on the networks um, and they're not kind of getting the level of training that they were and obviously Huge money is going to some writers, the likes of Shonda Rhimes and Ryan Murphy and Phoebe Waller-Bridge get these insanely massive deals. Phoebe Waller-Bridge, I've got to say, millennial hero. She got paid 60 million quid by Amazon. She hasn't made a, a minute of TV for them in three years. Extraordinary. That's, I mean, amazing. Um, but the, the, the crux of this is obviously pay conditions, but they've got the specific demand that's jumping out is that it's a call for only humans, not AI, to be allowed to write or rewrite literary material. Obviously, these are people with big imaginations because they are writers, uh, but it's, you know, it's not, un- it's not unbelievable given the pace of this stuff and just trying to keep you know, top of chat GPT, that you could you could find a studio thinking, oh, we can we can program this algorithm to to read every script around, to see what works, to study the things that get awards and get it to polish off these scripts. And so that's their demand is that that is not a part of the process. And there's loads of pieces around at the moment uh, about AI. But one thing that did stand out to me this week on the British side um, is as a consumer... And I think this is right. And as just a person, you should always have the right to, one, deal with an actual other person and not have a corporation just deal with you via a AI. And two, always know that it's an AI that you're dealing with. Um, and I think we are having to very quickly think about the rights of this. And, and when I read this piece about the, those two points that were being made, I was like, 
yeah, this this needs to be put in place super quickly because mm. you can think of, you know, dialing a call center and and being, you know, which is already a frustrating enough process, all those jobs being potentially replaced by AI, um, but not, you know, but demanding that you actually speak to a real person if it's just not working and being made aware you could you could not know that it is an ai that seems fundamental but yeah this writer strike they're obviously concerned about it it's not at the top of lists of professions which is sort of administrative accounting some legal services uh, very much uh, under fire i know of lawyers who say that they're already in their law firms here in london using ai for the sort of if you're on a big sort of case that's a lot of litigation, there can be what's called discovery. You're dealing with thousands, tens of thousands of documents, particularly in the digital age. You've got huge computer databases to search and things. Uh, and you have sections of the firm and companies that just do specifically that work. And they're already completely testing out using AI to do the discovery for them. And they're finding the results incredibly impressive mm. and cost effective. And of course, this week, we saw the resignation of Jeffrey Hinton, who has been called the godfather of AI. He was uh, He's just left his role at Google to speak out about the dangers of the very technology he helped to develop. Yeah, because he said the pay in the last year has been breakneck and we are where he thought we would be in sort of 10, 15 years time. We've come that way in about nine months, he Mm. seemed to suggest. So I saw that, you know, Joe Biden was having a summit with tech heads, I think it was yesterday or Thursday, uh, to sort of talk about what needs to come in. But it it is going to be an issue. I think it'll be interesting, actually, if it becomes an election issue. You've got the US and UK elections, uh, or the US definitely next year, UK likely next year. But, you know, this is an industrial revolution wave that could strip out a whole load of jobs, not the traditional jobs that we're used to globalization taking, like the manufacturing jobs. But this is, you know, middle class professions very much coming under threat from this. Yeah, from barrister to barista, that will be the only jobs left for us, the the service industry. Um, It's really interesting, though, going back to the writer's strike, because, of course, this does have huge effects. I mean, when you look at something like um, at Christmas time, if you go onto Netflix, Mm. there are a million Christmas romance movies. All about a woman going back to her hometown. Exactly. And And, and they're just little things change, like what she does for a living or... But, you know, there'll be definite plot points along the way. There's halfway through... Quarter way through, there's a meet cute, then there's a misunderstanding. Yeah. And, and they're um, always arriving at the front. So, so the front coverage is he'll always be in like a flannel shirt that's like red, and she'll be in like a green top yeah. and it'll, with a beret type hat. Yeah. It's very, yeah. <laughs> and But you could easily see how AI could do that. I mean, it's oh, so simple to, yeah. to do it. Yeah, yeah. you know, you can um, see it now. But, Luckily, this is not going to affect theatre. And actually, what it probably means is good news for theatre, because if there's no new content coming out on the streaming services Mm. or in the movies, people will turn more and more to the stage. Both you and I were struck by this huge full page uh, um, advert in in the FT today. Now, it's of the very gorgeous James Norton, uh, who lots of people will know from Happy Valley, which was the Tommy Lee Royce. Yeah, hugely successful television series. But of course, he's also also starring in Hannah Nigahara's um, A Little Life uh, at the moment. And this this picture is, in fact, not promoting that. It's promoting Mont Blanc. Mm, yeah, Inspire Writing is the tagline. He's sitting reading a book uh, in a very nice-looking library with some Mont Blanc gear around him. Uh, but, yeah, we've both been to see uh, A Little Life. You got to see it with the author, which is I did. Great. It was very scary because, I th- I mean, you know, it's nearly four hours long and everybody says, you know, how extremely violent it is. So before I went, I thought, what if I want to walk out? I can't. I'm sitting <laughs> next to her. Yeah, it is It is a very intense watch. If anyone's read the book, I mean, it's I think it's 800 pages. Um, it deals with the subject 
aspect of the trauma from early childhood abuse and the sort of circular nature of that and how it comes back and back and back. The book has plot-driven sections and what I'd call the kind of like young, youthful, fun sections. And obviously to distill it down into a play, it's already four hours. They strip out a lot of the kind of in-between times of growing up in your 20s and 30s and it is all plot. It is very intense. And I can I went with a, a friend's fiance who was eight months pregnant. We both liked the book. Uh, and we were a bit worried because we, you know, taught, there's, par- there's a paramedic there every night. People have been passing out because there is a lot of violence. There is self-harm. It is intense. I can tell you that, uh, and I won't name him, but uh, a friend who was a doctor went to see it he passed out 40 minutes in this is a, a doctor who's very used to seeing this kind of thing because of the self-harm because you actually see you know cutting and blood and that kind of thing um cleverly cleverly done uh, and that production was on that night the play got suspended for another 20 20 minutes because someone else passed out i've got a friend who loved the book that went and couldn't hack it and was sick and had to leave i mean it is intense theatre and it's very visceral there's always smells there's either real live cooking going on on stage or there's cleaning up after some horrible incident so you're constantly battling between these smells and and of food and then disinfectant and and stuff it is Mm. a very uh it's in london i'm sure it'll go to it keeps getting extended in london it's it's a very hard thing to do i feel for the actors to do that level of performance the intensity of the work I think they're doing it now all the way until August. I think it'll be a dead cert for going to Broadway as well. Absolutely. And in fact, James Norton, who stars, is uh, diabetic. He has type 1 diabetes. And his blood sugar while he's on stage is monitored the whole time. And every now and again, you'll see a backstage person come in and slip something into his mouth. If his blood sugar's dropped and they can see it, they'll come in and give him uh, a bit of sugar. Yeah, I mean, he he doesn't leave the stage for the entire thing. Most of the intermission as well is the actors just sort of quietly pretending on stage. Um, And he, you know, he's going through really physical acting. He's naked for huge parts of it. It is a massively, you know, I I can't believe he's doing that all the way to August because the subject matter is so intense. Yeah. Um, But what I'm really interested in is I think that advert doesn't even have his name on it, does it? No. Uh, That he has... Through, through television and through theatre becomes such a recognisable figure. Yeah. You see this very handsome man in this beautiful book-lined room and it says Mont Blanc and you immediately make the association with James Norton, with culture, with erudition, mm. with beauty. And he's, you know, he's, he did, I think he did theology at Cambridge. He's very academic. He's very interesting. He always gives interesting interviews. He is perennially on the uh, front-runner list for James Bond as well, yes. um, which apparently will be coming, that announcement will be coming soon. Um, so yeah, watch this. He's uh, yeah, he's definitely someone who's uh, you know very intriguing to watch. Uh, absolutely, uh, Vincent. I'm going to let you go because I think you're off to the coronation. I am. Yeah, not to the Abbey, but I will be uh, going down now to uh, the Mall, so right by Buckingham Palace to see all the uh, pageantry and cover that today. Mm-hmm. Guess where I'm going. Oh, well, I, I know. It's quite it's quite a different path. <laughs> I am going to Woking Pizza Express, where I absolutely will not be sweating. <laughs> Do you want to know my Pizza Express at? I, my Desert Island luxury item would be Pizza Express salad dressing. I eat it literally every day. It's not just for salad. Just ask them for a little pot of it and dip the crusts in. Really? It's heaven. Oh, it's so Do good. You know, I, I don't think I've ever knowingly been to Pizza Express, but it seemed to me the, the conjunction of having to it's drive genuinely past... genuinely great pizza. Like, it's genuinely <laughs> great pizza. Get the American hot, ask them for a little pot of the 
other other salad dressings are available. Uh, yeah. Ask them for the house Caesar and just dip the crusts. You'll have a great time. I will. I will try it, and hopefully it won't make me get sick. the do- get the doubles as well. Obviously, as a, I'm yeah. going as a tribute to Prince Andrew. I, I can tell you something. So I thought because I grew up first eight years of my life in Jersey. I didn't realise that Pizza Express was like a national chain. And in Jersey, there's one right on the beach as well. Um, and I just thought it was like this great pizza place. Then came to the UK and was like, oh, wait, no, they're everywhere. I thought it was like a really <laughs> fancy restaurant. When I first arrived in this country, I was driving, somebody was driving me in from the airport. I was, and, and I just couldn't believe how many restaurants had the same name. They were all called Tandoori. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea. I'd never come across tandoori before. I said, like, how weird. Tandoori this, tandoori that. <laughs> Very strange. OK, off to, to go and tug your forelock. I hope you won't be doing that. No, well, we'll see. I'm just there. I'm there professionally. Right. OK, well, happy coronation to you. <laughs> uh, and finally, Monocle's Andrew Muller reveals what the last seven days have taught us. We learned this week of a small but hopefully resonant blow struck in the noble causes of decorum, decency, peace and quiet. We learned that the global plague of public pianos, pianos that is left in public places where any passing yahoo may attempt to tickle their ivories with nigh invariably earaching results, has been reduced by one. That was roughly our reaction as well. We learned that municipal authorities in Kakugawa, a conurbation in Japan's Hyogo prefecture, had thought better of the Joanna they had installed in the city's main railway station, following repeated issues with hooligan scoff laws playing it too long or too loudly, or worse still, singing along as they did so. We did not learn, sadly, that Kakugawa's burgers had further demonstrated penitence at their grievous error by ceremoniously kicking the piano to pieces in public. Or by hurling past players of the piano into the river, or the pond, or the lake, or whatever largish body of water they have in Kakugawa. But we learned that a commendable start to a worthy enterprise had been made. Yeah. Always good to have you on board, General Muttered Agreement crew. And one banana, two banana, three banana, four, four bananas make a bunch of so many more. Sticking with the theme of tedious attention seekers in the field of the creative arts being thwarted in the region of Southeast Asia, we also learned of the least exciting art heist in the history of crime. We learned that amid an exhibition of the works of uninteresting Italian sculptor Maurizio Catalan at the Leon Museum of Art in Seoul, a passing punter had made off with one of his pieces, entitled Comedian, because, as he subsequently explained, he was hungry. What? What? What's the point? What's the point? I don't even know what that means. What? I understand that. See, now we've lured you in. This scenario makes more sense, although granted in some respects less sense, when it is understood that comedian consists of a banana gaffer taped to the wall. Oh, I see. 
Sure, I get it now. Yeah. We learned when we looked into it further that while previous editions of Comedian, which is to recap, a banana gaffer taped to the wall, had been sold to idiots at prices in excess of 120,000 US dollars, the artist, gallery, and local law enforcement were serenely unvexed by the purloining of this example. Police did not appeal for witnesses, etc. We learned upon further deeply reluctant research that this may have had something to do with the fact that the banana is replaced every couple of days anyway, and that as there is no great shortage of the potassium-rich curvy yellow berries, the official attitude was whatevs. And or we learned that the artist at the centre of this sensational non-event might have been distracted by a lawsuit. For we also learned that, even more stupidly, Catalan is currently being pursued for alleged plagiarism by another artist, one Joe Morford, and no, neither of we, who claims that Comedian is a rip-off of his work, Banana and Orange, which consists of, as educated listeners may already have surmised, a banana and an orange gaffer taped to a wall. At the conclusion of this monologue, we will be soliciting bids on a new work of our own entitled Banana and Orange and Grapefruit, consisting of a banana and an orange and a grapefruit gaffer taped to a wall, who'll start us at 200 grand. (coughs) A reaction from which we learned that we are damned to continue making fun of the week's news for a retainer which, if we're honest, comes to barely half that amount. Honestly, where's the justice? But we learned that it could be worse. We learned that Boris Johnson, former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, had been arrested in the Netherlands for drink driving. Or had he? No, it turned out he had not. Oh. We learned that while Dutch Plod had apprehended an erratic motorist who had pranged into a pole very possibly after having had a few jars, and that while Dutch Plod had found about the person of said motorist a licence identifying him as Boris Johnson, with a photo and correct birth date and everything, Dutch Plod were unconvinced by this forgery, doubtless because of the complete implausibility of the very idea of Boris Johnson Boris Johnson, of all people, behaving in a reckless, destructive and generally ill-advised fashion, resulting in expensive and undignified calamity. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Muller. Many thanks there to Andrew, and that's all for Monocle on Saturday. Thanks to our studio engineer in London, Nora Hull, and our producer, Isabella Jewell. Monocle on Saturday returns next weekend. Next up, though, a look at the world of magazines with Monocle's senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, on The Stack. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.